Would you guys do this with me? Would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? We are going to be in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. We continue to work our way through it, verse by verse. And we are in chapter 5 today, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. By the power of your spirit, would you teach us today, through the proclamation of your word, would we see the beauty of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? Would we see the glory of the gospel on display, the story that you are writing of redemption and restoration and the renewal of all things. We thank you so much for the work you've done. Would you be seen as beautiful and wonderful to us today? Open up our eyes. It's in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you think of the posture of leaning forward, what do you think? When you think of the posture of leaning forward, what is it that you think of? What does it tell you when someone is leaning forward? Oh, there you go. My daughter Hadley, she's six years old, she loves books. She loves books, and she leans so hard into the books, she's basically, you know, nose to page. It's like she's trying to fall into the story. And I have to, like, keep pulling her head back because her hair is all over the pages and I can't, I can't read the words. And she's just, she's there. She's leaning in. She's, she's eager. She wants, she wants to enter into it. She does the same thing with her artwork. She draws her, her cartoon princesses and these sweet little, little scenes. And she's riveted. She's riveted by that page and that, that pencil and what, what can happen. And so all of her focus and all of her attention is, is right there. She's so tuned into it that I'll call her sometimes and she just like tunes that completely out. Right? Doesn't, doesn't hear me. I have to tap her on the shoulder. She's leaning in. And the other day, uh, my wife Marla and I took the kids um, to a movie with, with some friends. Um, and there we are taking up a whole row in the, in the movie theater, these, these families with all, all these kids, little kids everywhere. And there's a point, uh, there's a point in the movie when it's swelling with excitement and there's a potential of, of disaster. And at that point, I'm on the end, I look down at the row and I see six little kids doing this. All of them, like they are all leaning in. 
rapt attention, mouths open, eyes flashing with adventure. Leaning in. We lean in to things that we like, don't we? We lean towards the things that we want to be close to. We lean towards what we see is good and beautiful and true. We lean forward when we want to understand more. When there's an ache that needs to be resolved, we, we lean forward. We, we lean forward when we want to see something better, when we want to hear something more. We lean in when we're engaged. It's a posture of affection. It's a posture of intimacy. It's a posture of attention. Well, in this passage of 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls the Thessalonians, he calls all apprentices of Jesus to be a forward-leaning he does so as he continues to address that church's concerns about Jesus' return and about death. And so what we're going to see as we move through this, we're going to see that a forward-leaning people are expectant. They are awake. They are aware. They're attentive. They are assured. And they are encouragers of each other. So before we open up the text, recall that Paul loves this church of this Thessalonican city. And he loves them. He wishes he could be with them, but he's basically run out of town under the cover of darkness because when he came to preach the right-side-up news, the gospel of King Jesus, the upside-down, broken kingdom of this world, reacted violently and pushed against them, and so Paul is run out of town. But he wants to be with them. He loves them. And so he sends Timothy. He says, Timothy, go check on the Thessalonians, see how they're doing, that we might pray for them, encourage them, and teach them. Timothy, one of the guys who helped plant the church there in Thessalonica, he comes back to Paul and says, Paul, it's better than you could have imagined. They are staying strong. They are humbly, faithfully following King Jesus. But, just like all of us, they need some encouragement. They need some help. They need to be taught on some matters. See, they had questions about those who had died. They had questions about the return of of Jesus, which was a key part of the understanding of the, the early Christians. As soon as they became Christians or in hearing the gospel, one of the things that they heard was that King Jesus is coming back. It's not just that we get evacuated from here and go to heaven someday, but King Jesus is coming back, bringing the kingdom, regardening this earth for total flourishing and drawing us into that mission. And he will come back to make all things right. So, Okay, with that said, now we can get into the first verses here. So let's continue on and see what, what this means to live this forward-leaning life. Verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. What does he mean by this? Well, he's simply saying this, Friends, you all know I don't need to talk to you about calendaring. I don't need to do it. You know that you won't know when Jesus comes back. Times and seasons. These words, these are Greek words, chronos and kairos. Chronos is the chronological or the sequential ordering that's measured by your watch or by clocks. When you think of time, that's generally what we think of, chronos. But this other thing, seasons, this is kainos. This is the events, the momentous moments of life that are measured by by meaning, 
You know the date and the day, the hour that your child was born. That's chronos, but kainos is the fact that your child was born in that season of life. It was a momentous moment for you and is part of your story and is loaded with meaning, kainos. Why does he say both these words here? Well, it has been made clear to the Thessalonians in earlier teachings that they are not going to be able to put a day and an hour of Jesus' return into their calendar app. They're not going to be able to do it. They won't have a countdown clock. So they should not be obsessing over the specific time that Christ will come back. They should not turn their energies and attentions to decoding the precise when, to speculating Jesus' ETA, his touchdown. And though the Bible is incredibly clear, like incredibly clear at so many points on this, countless people throughout the centuries have pinpointed the day when Jesus is going to arrive. Jesus was supposed to come back in 500 AD. Jesus was supposed to come back the 1st of January, 1000 AD. You can go back through the, the records, the, the early church records. You can go back through uh, just the last 10, 15 years and find all of these things, right? He was supposed to come back in 1200 AD. Didn't happen. 1370 AD. Didn't happen. October 19th, 1533, calculated by mathematician Michael Seifel. Didn't happen. Miscalculation. 1757, he was supposed to come back. December 25th, 1814. That was a no-go. October 22nd, 1844. Um, this was predicted by a group called the Millerites. And when October 22nd came and went and Jesus didn't come and bring his kingdom, it became known as the Great Disappointment. And out of that group developed the Seventh-day Adventists. 1874 was the supposed year, according to Charles Taze Russell, who was the founder of the Jehovah's Witness. That was a no-go as well. September 6th, 1994, I remember this one. That was the day, according to, do you remember, Harold? Harold Camping? That didn't happen, so they tried again. May 21st, 2011, nope. Right again, October 21st, 2011, strike three. And then, of course, Y2K, you guys remember that? January 1st, everything was going to end. Christ was going to come back because the computer's going to handle it all, so he had to come back, right? And on and on the list runs. Scripture says no one will know. We are to expect an unexpected return. We know that we will not know when. That's what we know. So Paul continues on to make his point. Paul's trying to make himself very clear. I think he does make himself very clear. Verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The return of the king will come like a thief in the night. And how is that? Well, unannounced. Right? No thief calls ahead and says, hey, I'm coming tonight. just want to give you a heads up. Right? Bilbo did not put in a call to the Lonely Mountain and let Smog know he was on his way. That's not how it works. Unexpected and unannounced is the idea here. So, see, see here, look, Paul says that it will be a surprise because life will be going on as, as usual. In fact, it won't even seem all that likely that it's time for him to come back. The popular thought, the vibe of the day, the zeitgeist is that there's peace and security. Things are right. Things seem fine. But it is in that day when all things seem fine, when all things seem somewhat normal, that he will come. 
When you wake up and you get your kids ready for school and you drive them to school. When you stop by your local coffee shop and get your normal order. When you are preparing for a nice family vacation. It will be in an as-usual kind of day. Now, Paul's a great communicator, so he's going to shift the metaphor to help us out here. He then uses the metaphor of labor pains, the onset of contractions. And in doing so, um, his words become a little bit more ominous. He talks of destruction and, and not escaping. What is this? I thought Jesus coming back was a good thing. Well, it is. Let's see um, what he does here with this. So the idea here, as anyone who has ever been in labor knows, I have not, but I've been close to it. When the contractions start, and I'm not talking just the, the, the Braxton Hicks, but like true active labor contractions. Like when they come, when they come, there's no going back. There's only forward, right? Only forward. The time has come. You can't say, you know, I think I'll hold off. That mother can't say, you know, it's a bad weekend for me. I'm not quite ready. Um, I think I'll do this next Saturday so I can prepare a few more things. No, no, right? The baby is no respecter of your calendar. Your toddlers are no respecter of your calendars, right? That's just how it is. There's no escaping. It's inevitable. The baby is coming. So like a thief in the night, Jesus' return is unexpected. And like birth pangs, his return is unavoidable and inescapable. The new creation that is being birthed has to deal with us all and all of our destinies. We will all have to reckon with it. There's no avoiding it. There is no escaping it. The Marshalls, they just had their baby, like I, I mentioned. Uh, um, my wife, Marla, was prepared to help because they have two other little ones, Evelyn and, and Joe. And so, so Marla was like on call, ready to go to help watch their kids when the Marshalls were going to go to the hospital. So um, she was alert, right? She was attentive. She was leaning into her phone every time there was a text, like, is it, is it go time, right? She put the phone by, by the bed so she could get the call in the middle of the night because she needed to be alert because she knew when that time came, it was coming, right? It was only moving forward from, from there, no going back. So for those who trust Jesus, his return is, his, it's unannounced, but it's expected. It's not unanticipated, but it's unannounced. Whereas for those who don't know him, it's unannounced, it's unanticipated, and it's unwanted. And that is a tragedy of it. And so with that, let's, let's deal with these words, sudden destruction. Do you see those words in verse 3? Sudden destruction. What's this? Well, Jesus' return is the best news. But for some, it is the worst of news. Jesus' return is a day of celebration. Day of celebration for those who trust him. But it's a day of judgment, of condemnation for those who don't. His return brings salvation and condemnation. And we don't like to talk about this latter bit, do we? It's, it's rather unpopular. But this is not so hard to understand, is it? The same rising sun melts hard ice. And it hardens soft clay, doesn't it? The same rising sun melts ice and hardens clay. The same turning on of a light reveals both um, the, the order and cleanliness of a room as well as the disorder and filth of a room. 
same light, revealing very different things. The same event is experienced differently by different people. When King Richard the Lionheart arrives back in Nottingham, that's great news for Robin Hood and the oppressed of Sherwood Forest, right? It's bad news for who? Prince John, right? Greedy, grubby, tax-collecting Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Bad news for those guys, right? When Gandalf shows up at the Battle of Helm's Deep, it's glowing news for the hobbits, the humans, the elves, and the dwarves, and it's bad news for Sauron and the orc army. Terrible news for them. Their judgment has come with the rising of the sun. When the sun rises, it is the end of the night. When the light comes, the shadows dissipate. It's bad news for the shadows when the light rises. Now, in Scripture, this is called the day of the Lord. Okay, the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment for God's enemies. It's the day of ultimate liberation and ultimate salvation for his people. And the idea is found throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, in the, the teachings of Jesus and the prophets. It's everywhere. There's no wiping it out of Scripture without ripping almost all the pages out of the Bible. It's there. We must deal with it. And in fact, it's incredibly good news. So the day of Jesus' return is glorious and terrifying. It's a day of justice. It's a day of justice when all is exposed and when all is properly dealt with. When those who have refused the good, the beautiful, and the true get their due. And here's the strange thing, guys. This is incredibly strange. Many people in our world hear this and they scoff. Terrible theology. Are you kidding me? My God's a God of love. And you're talking about judgment? You're talking about wicked and righteous. That, that, that seems really, really intolerant to me. My God is a God of love. Yet, here's the deal. These same people daily cry out for justice. As human beings, we cry out for justice. We intuit that justice is right. It's why Christians are called to be those who are advocates for justice as those who follow Jesus. Justice, justice, it's written in large letters, permanent marker, on signs, lifted in streets. It's written in all caps in our social media feeds. But when Scripture speaks out of this great arrival, well, that's troubling. When God says he's going to bring perfect justice, people recoil, they cringe, and they mock. When he says he will bring salvation to the righteous and judgment to the wicked, to those who deserve it, who have hurt people, who have refused reality, who have abused others who have oppressed them, when he says he's coming back to deal with that, we're suddenly a lot less concerned about justice and we start talking about mercy and love and tolerance. It's kind of weird, isn't it? We could spend hours on the incoherencies here and the injustices of, of popular and secular calls for justice that have nothing to do with King Jesus. But think it through. God is just. He will judge. So in short, on, on this part here, we should know that the coming of Jesus is good news in that he will make all things right. He will bring ultimate justice to an incredibly unjust world. All right, so verse 4. Let's keep going. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. 
We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So as apprentices of Jesus, that's what Christians are, we're not in the dark, right? We're not in the dark. We have revelation. We know the story is going somewhere. It's not chance and incoherence. It's not meaningless. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he's coming back and bringing deliverance to all people, and he will judge those who are against him, and he will do away with evil, and he will wipe away every tear. We know there is a coming day of reckoning, not in the dark. Don't know the day, but we know it's coming. So as those who know there's a good king, who's a righteous judge, who is our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our restorer. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we are to live a certain way. There is an ought to written into the universe, carved into our very hearts. We ought to live certain ways. We live in a morally ordered universe. We live in a morally ordered universe. And we are to live as those who are expectant, awake, and aware of that truth and what he's doing. We are to live in light of the future to properly live in the present. So, knowing that he will return and make all things right calls us to live alert and awake in the days that we have been given. And this is obvious, right? When someone is asleep, they're not attentive to what's going on around him or her, right? They're not aware of what's, what's happening. When someone is not sober, they are not seeing things clearly. They are seeing things through a lens of, of distortion. They're not properly responding to what's going on. But an eternal perspective, what Christ is going to do, his coming, again, acts like smelling salts. If we meditate on it, think on it, let it inform our days, it, it acts like smelling salts to awake us and to keep us attentive and, and alert. And so when we see the earth in light of the fact that he will make a new heaven and new earth, we can see things soberly and we can live well. We can have proper perspective on what's important and what's not, what's temporal, what's eternal. We can turn our energies and our attentions to those things that matter. And we are also given the strength and the perspective, the, the story context, to suffer well. Viktor Frankl, do you guys know that name? Have you heard the name Viktor Victor Frankl? Famous Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, Holocaust survivor. Was in Dachau, was in Auschwitz, lost his mother, his father, his wife, and his brother and many friends to the horrors of the Holocaust. He saw many things. He saw countless numbers die. He saw others surprisingly survive. And he saw a commonality of the survivors. And this commonality, this thread that, that ran through them was hope. Was hope, a meaning, something to lean forward towards, something to lean to, whether it was writing, finishing a book that they had started, some other task, finishing their degree at university, or to see their son or daughter or their, their spouse or mom and dad again. Those who survived leaned forward. There was a, a hope that helped them hang on. And in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says this. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. That's an incredibly wise sentence. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. See, they were a future-oriented people. 
They were forward-leaning people. And because of it, they could actually look outside themselves because there was an ember, at least, of hope glowing that they could help others and tend to others and their sufferings in the concentration camps. How they perceived the future formed how they lived in the moment that they might love other people well. Now, um, the Apostle Peter talks about some of these similar things that Paul does, and I think it's important to bring these in. So um, let me read 2 Peter chapter 3. This is 2 Peter, also a New Testament letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, see there it is again, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's judgment. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Man, (laughs) what a passage. Do you have all day? Can we just sit and go through that? He says that an uncreation is coming. And then a recreation, a renewal. And so, so many of the things that we're clinging to, the things that loom so large in our daily view that enslave us, they will melt away when we have this proper understanding and perspective. Those material possessions, that dream house, that dream car, those fancy toys for for weekend adventures, they will melt. Wall Street, our 401ks, they will be consumed. Our designer clothes, our fancy phones, cinders, fame, celebrity, our influence on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, all up in smoke. Don't place your trust, your love, your hope in these things that are not eternal. See what he says? Since all these things will dissolve, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In light of what's coming... You should live a certain way now, not just someday. We are to live on earth as it is in heaven, in this very moment that we are in. The coming of the day of the Lord is not an obscure doctrine. That is just trivia. It ought to be in our minds. It ought to be in our minds. We have to lean forward because of it. So, how do we do this? How do we lean forward towards this reality? How do we steer our attention and our affections to Jesus and press forward to his return? Well, Paul helps us out. He's a great pastor. He gives us some good application here after some solid theology. So, verse 8. Here's what he says. First Thessalonians, back to First Thess, chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So here's what he says. How do you lean forward? How do you live this way? And he boils it down to this incredible triad that we see throughout um, the New Testament. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, this is trust. We place our trust in God's word. We listen to Jesus. We set aside and submit um, all narratives about the world and how it functions. We submit all those to the true narrative of who 
Jesus is. God's word is authoritative. We listen to it. To trust him necessitates we know what he has said. And so we meditate on his word day and night that we might abide with him, be with him through his word and his spirit, and that we then might obey and live in accordance with the truth of who he is. We are to let him be the judge of good and evil and not judge for ourselves like Eve did in the garden and rip everything apart. Trust him and not lean on our own understandings. Love, we are to live other-centered lives, to serve him and others at great cost to ourselves, to die daily, that we might bless other people. We live like Jesus who gave his life for the good of others. We are to enjoy and delight in him and other people, not objectify and use him and other people for our own selfish ends. Faith, love, and hope. Hope, we live in the moment in light of what is coming. We trust in his promises, knowing that they're not, you know, potentials. Hopefully they happen in in our sense of hopefully, but we know they'll happen and now we wait for them, even amidst the tears and suffering. We know the story's not over. We cling to his promises. We let the gospel transform our imagination so we can see the world as it really is and not buy into the cynicism and despair our culture feeds us. We have our imaginations reshaped to see reality by the gospel, because this is just the prologue before the coming story of eternal life that goes on and on. This is the tuning of the orchestra before the forever symphony that fills our souls with beauty for all of existence. See, Paul is saying that a proper understanding of what is to come does not mean we check out. And sometimes eschatology, sometimes when we try to find the specific date, sometimes when we talk about this stuff, um, it it becomes like a license to just check out. God's going to do what God's going to do. I'm just going to kick back, you know, bail on my job like some of them were doing in Thessalonica and just, you know, he's coming back. This is the opposite. He's saying, no, no, this should call you to be active and call you to live leaning forward not reclining, kicking back, just waiting for God to do what he's going to do. So proper understanding of what is coming motivates and energizes a life of faith, love, and hope. And how does he say it? He says, by, you've put on this breastplate of faith and love. In other words, by trusting in Jesus, you are now empowered to live this way. You can't do it on your own. It's because he has given you his armor as the Messiah. You're in him, you're with him, therefore you can now have faith, hope, and love. So, knowledge of what is to come fuels and catalyzes our call to daily faithful obedience in, in Jesus. And again, the ironic thing about this passage and other passages that speak of the end, that speak of eschatology, all this stuff, um, is that um, they become abstracted codes and calculations and divisive speculations about how it's all going to go rather than calls for us as the community of his people, as a community of the spirit to lean forward to him and to trust him, love him, and place our hope in him. Now, what does it keep us from being anxious and scared about this day of the Lord? Because maybe you're sitting there going, uh, okay, I don't know. Uh, that sounds a little scary to me. Maybe this talk of judgment has us nervous and scared. How can we be assured? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. So good. This is so good. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here's the great assurance. The coming wrath is not our destiny. Coming home into the open, gracious arms of Jesus and experiencing joy eternal, that's our destiny. Why? Because we deserve it? Because we're awesome? Because we're better than others who don't deserve it? Purely because of the radical, loving grace of our God. Because of the cross of Jesus. Because of the cross of Jesus, which should have been ours, where the wrath was taken, where he took what we deserved. He took our due death and he substituted his, his true life. And it's given to us by, by grace. This is a great exchange. This is what's theologically called substitutionary atonement, which is incredibly unpopular in our world. But it's our only hope. It's a deep core reality of salvation that runs from Genesis to Revelation. On the cross, he has liberated us from any of the due wrath that was to come our way. Judgment and justice can be had, and mercy can still come our way because of the cross. So in other words, we have no need to worry about the day of the Lord. In fact, we can say, come, Lord Jesus. We want that day to come. Because there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are on Jesus, in Jesus. If you are feeling condemned because of what you have done in your past and, and trauma that you have felt and, and shame that you have felt, in Christ there is zero condemnation. You're free. It has no legal hold on you. So the gospel tells us that as those who are his, when he returns, our meeting will be one of joy and celebration, a victory march. It's a victory march. We're loved and accepted because of Christ. So we lean towards him. Now, again, we don't earn this happily ever after. That's coming. We can't earn it. If it was on us to earn, we would be living in fear and trepidation. I would be living in anxiety every day because there's no way I could do it, right? No way. It's, it's because of his, his love. And so, with that said, we now need to rehearse the truth. Rehearse the truth with each other. We need to encourage one another to help each other remember who Jesus is, what he's done, who we are as his beloved children. We rehearse the truth. We encourage one another. We remind each other that we are children of the King and he is our Lord. We are encouragers. So Paul calls the Thessalonians to lean forward to the future with their feet firmly planted in the time and place that God has set them. He's not calling you to check out from your neighborhood. He's not calling you to check out from your community. He's calling you to have your feet firmly planted where he put you because he ordained it, but you are to lean forward that you might be an ambassador that brings the fragrance of heaven to earth. And so, let me just, I'll, I'll sum it up with this little slide here. Hopefully this helps you. A forward-leaning people are joyfully expectant. We're not freaked out that he's coming back. We're excited that he's coming back. Joyfully expectant. We long for Jesus to return. We want to be with the one we love. Forward-leaning people are awake to reality. We know the gospel truth 
not because we dragged it down from the heavens or dug it up from the earth, but because He graciously delivered it to us. We are attentive to God's Word. We lean in and listen to what He judges as good and evil, right and wrong. We don't make it up. We don't vote in culture what's right and wrong. We listen to Him. We are assured of salvation. We rest in knowing we're saved by grace. And a forward-leaning people are encouragers of others. We speak the good news because we can't wait to share it. And this forward-leaning life is cultivated through the graces of faith, hope, and love that are found in our union with Jesus. The more, the more one longs to be with Jesus at his future return, the more it forms how we live in the present moment. The more one knows that a final reckoning is coming by a good king, the more one is motivated to love well. The more one is assured of their salvation, the more courageous we can be in a hostile world. The more bold and loving we can be in proclaiming truth when it goes against the cultural tide. Because we are assured we will be okay. All the world could hate us but we are held in the love of Christ. So we love no matter the cost. So in closing, um, I, was, I was traveling this week, and um, I, was, I got home late, late Friday night from a trip up to, to Portland, and I was sitting in the, the Portland airport waiting for my flight. And as you do at the airport, you people watch, you know. Um, and you know, the planes are unloading that are coming in, and just over and over and over again, I'd see someone, and they'd, you know, they looked, they looked expectant. They just, like, they're expecting something, right? And I'd see them lean forward and look as, as people were coming off the plane. And it was the family members of the ones who were coming off. And you'd watch. you just watch them lean. And the more people would come off, and they'd lean forward, right? And they'd lean forward. And then they would see their daughter or husband or whoever it was, and they would really lean, and they would rush, and they would lean in and embrace. Their expectation was full of love and affection, and it was evidenced in their actions. May it be so with us in the arrival of King Jesus. As apprentices of Jesus, we long for the arrival of the one we love. And is it any wonder that the scriptures end with Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. And the response to him is, come, Lord Jesus. Come. So friends, let's lean forward in faith, love, and hope. Let's live here on earth as in heaven. Let's lean into the good news that our King is coming and He's going to make it all right. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Heavenly Father, You are good to us. We thank You and we love You. We need You. And I pray that the things that we talked about today would not stay abstract doctrines, but, but they would captivate our imaginations. They would transform how we think and how we feel. And let the glorious truth of the fact that you're coming back, let that change how we treat one another. We love you, Lord, and we need you, and we thank you for this opportunity to come to the table now. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.